everyone, and welcome back to High Story for the last time. This will be my final episode calling myself High Story. After this episode, I'm changing the name over to our new show title, My Second Self and I. We talk about weird crimes. If you're a new listener, that was my co-host, Alex Matthews. That's my country singer, Alter Ego, and also the voice inside my head. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt, of course, the primary host of the show. Welcome. First of all, thank you to everyone who's been around since the beginning of this little experiment a few, since a few months ago, back in July. I've since figured out a much clearer direction for the show to take, and I think I've got a pretty good energy figured out for everybody to vibe with as well. If you want to be a supporter of the show, pop on over to whatever thing you're listening on, rate and review the show, especially Apple, that one seems to matter the most for some reason, I don't know why, but it does, so I, we would super appreciate that. The show should remain the same for you, the only thing you'll really have to look out for is new artwork, which I posted up over on the Facebook page and the Instagram page, which I'm gonna do again, just to make sure everyone can see it and know what to look for whenever the name change does take place. That's really just a lot of work for me to figure out, so you won't have to do much. We've got another off-the-walls story for you today, so rise and shine for true crime comedy time. Boom, bam, let's do this. I want to give everybody a bit of a trigger warning ahead of time today, just in case you're not mentally equipped to handle something like this today. One of the victims today is a three-year-old. And I will also put in an extra little heads up at that point in the episode if you want to just skip over that part. Make it a little easier for you. Wouldn't blame you. Got a few updates from last week real quick, though. Forgot to say when they were sentenced last. It was on July 15th, 2014, which was my fucking birthday. So, again, how have I never heard of that story before now? The show's crazy. It's taught me so much about the world. Oh, and um, third-degree robbery is just simple robbery, threatening to take someone, threatening to take their property, quote, with intent to compel acquiescence, which I spelled right on the first try, no typos. Good for me. So it's just essential, uh, basically a simple robbery. And I overthought it because I'm dumb sometimes. All that being said, I'd like to take this opportunity to get everybody on the same page. This is a comedy show. Much of the material I have to work with on the show is kind of uncomfortable, and for me, the best way to digest uncomfortable situations is to laugh about it. Not at the victims, obviously, but there's generally a good bit of dark humor to be had at everything else around it, so, especially on this show. Load your time machines up and buckle up again. This week is at least as crazy as last week, if not more, but hey, at least there's no Nazis this time. Alright, so we're going back to 1988. The year two of my favorite movies would come out. Beetlejuice speaks for itself why it's on this list. And Die Hard will forever remain one of my favorite Christmas movies. Also came out this year, and I'm long overdue for a rewatching of it, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Been so long since I watched it, I forgot who even framed him. It was Baron Von Rotten. We're going to open up in Dallas today in the little suburb of Pleasant Grove. That name, super misleading. So let's just dive on into it today. We'll open up on a fun note with some reviews that I found. These are always good. So we'll check out just a few of these real quick just to get a little peek into what's going on inside this neighborhood. Apartment rating, address report, restaurants. Oh, I want to do a restaurant. I want to see what the people complain about here. Oh, it's a donut shop with good reviews. What do you got? 
4.1, 4.3 stars. 4.3 stars. Why are you using your street name to review a donut shop, Lil Laura Coyle? What are you doing that for? At least you gave it five stars, I guess. They have been there forever and a day. They do have the best donuts. You've got to try the chocolate twist. They are the best. Yeah, I'll do a chocolate twist. That does sound pretty good. Um, uh, what is this? This part, this guy gave it one star. There's no punctuation. I had her, was it cheese in the pig in blanket? She said it was, and when I look in there, it was not in there, just unprofessional. Okay, sir. What did he just How say? can I help you further? What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, another, oh, a long one star. All right. Oh, if I didn't mention it, this is a random donut shop in Pleasant Grove. Rude service. Asked the lady helping me if they had any chocolate or vanilla donuts, and she said no. What you see is what we have. Okay, it's pretty standard donut shop. I'm not making more donuts right now. When we went to go pay, I seen that they had a fresh tray in the back of the donuts. I asked if I could have some. She said, no, they're still wet. Wet donuts? So I asked, can I have some? She said, no. I asked how long it would take for the donuts to be ready. She said, five minutes. Then I asked if I could pay for them. I'll wait. She said, okay, with an attitude. Did You got your donuts, though, so you had to wait? Big deal. Shut up. Here's another one-star review. I paid for my order with change and put the rest on my card. The cashier didn't want to count it, made me count it, yo her. Then the male owner fussed at me for having change. Yeah, don't fucking give me coins. I don't want to count it. You count it for me. I don't, I don't know. Fucking, why are you surprised that they're frustrated at counting change? It's a pain in the ass. Another one-star. Food always old pictures of food looks nothing like in-person disappointing. I don't know what that person's trying to say, but... All these one stars sounds like people who don't know how to go out to eat, and everything else is four and five stars. Nothing out of the ordinary for a donut shop. Pretty good. Probably check it out. Pleasant Grub Donut. Oh, there's another one star I missed. Oh, but they're not really interesting. They're just stupid. Donut shop. All right, well, we'll go to the town part now. All right, we got a five star review here at Pleasant Grove. Been here my whole life, and I wouldn't choose anywhere else. Yes, there are many times it's dangerous to walk around freely, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Wait, wait a minute. Why not? What? You want to walk around where it's dangerous? Why do you want to do that? That seems silly. Here's another five star. I lived in Pleasant Grove for 26 years. The worst thing that ever happened was a stolen rose brush from an open fence. I think he means rose bush. Never locked my house or car. You should probably do that, though. Let's see. Another five star. I grew up in Pleasant Grove, so I wouldn't change. Single thing about it. I, those are two different sentences. There's a period. I just love how my neighbor, name here, and his family are so loving and caring. My neighborhood is amazing. Like, no, that, I have to say that guy's name. That's a weird name. Annie Ball? A-N-I-B-A-L? Annie Ball? It's like animal with an M. Annibal? That's, what is that? That's neat. I want where, what is that? Never heard of that. Is that, is that neat or stupid? I can't tell. I need to know what it means first, I guess. Alright, we'll do one more five star. I love Pleasant Grove because it's right smack in the middle of any major highway. Not to mention a taco stand on every corner. Oh, that sounds cool. If you grew up in the PG, that means you know everyone and everyone knows you. Family inside every store. Mmm, I guess. Right, let's go to a three star. Seems to be the majority is a three star. Pleasant Grove is my home and all I know. I learned to walk, write, and be myself here. 
However, there's many problems consisting of gang violence, environmental racism, and poverty. If I had the opportunity to change the way of life for those around me, I would instantly. What is environmental racism? Here's another three star. What I like about Pleasant Grove is that mostly all the neighborhood is Hispanic or bilingual. There is also a lot of areas for families to go, such as parks and recreation centers. Period. Okay, I thought you were going to do more. Oh, in addition, there are a lot of schools, mostly public schools, all the way from pre-K to community colleges, I would hope so, and medical offices, which are mostly paid by a kind of insurance or are very cheap. Uh, On the other hand, it is not a very safe neighborhood at night. Almost every night you can hear shootings. Oh, shit. I hope you have quick access to medical offices if there's shootings every night. Those aren't missing every time, probably. It's hitting something. It has to. Another three-star... Oh. This neighborhood is extremely dangerous. There is gunshots, drunk drivers, illegal street races, drug selling, and more. Uh, And I do not recommend you live by here. It is very chaotic and not safe. The public schools are not very good. The education is not the same as in other places. I do love the community you have with your neighbors, but it's too risky to go out at night. Murder and crime rates are high in this area. Be careful. God damn! That's a three-star review? That doesn't sound average. That sounds awful. (laughs) Pleasant Grove is a nice neighborhood. another three-star. Pleasant Grove is a nice neighborhood. Many people would consider it in the, quote, hood, but it's really a nice place to settle down. Not with gunshots every night, it's not. I disagree. Let's see a one star. Here we go. Terrible is the only filter applied. (laughs) It just says terrible. I didn't pick the filter, it just picked it. First one star review. Grew up in PG, but over the last 20 years or so, the neighborhood has deteriorated. Absolutely no police presence. I'm glad I moved to the East Coast, but I wish my family wasn't still living in this crime-riddled wasteland. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Another one star. The club nearby... The only club nearby allows 14-year-olds to enter, which is terrible, and yeah, don't, they shouldn't be in there. Most restaurants are the same, and there isn't many choices. If you want to go somewhere nice, you usually have to travel about 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, that's kind of everywhere. This next review is also everywhere. One star. Most jobs are low pay and part-time. They expect so much for so little, you hear a lot of people complaining about their job all the time. Only jobs really hiring in this area are grocery stores, which, uh, yeah. Fucking here, too. There's less crime, but that's kind of the only jobs, unless you're in the oil field or construction. Everything else is kind of just really picky-choosy right now out here. Here's a one-star review that's confusingly written. There are not easily noticed. T-H-E-R-E. I, I, you know what? I think I'm done with the reviews now. I think I've got pretty much what I need to know about this. This does not sound like a great place that I want to go to. It sounds like fucking, if you're familiar with the Houston area, this sounds a lot like Greens Point or maybe the rougher part of the Galleria. Galleria, also a very misleading name. Greens Point, too, Sora. There's a lot of there's a lot of named areas like that in the Houston greater metro area that they sound nice, but once you get down into them and start like going to places in there, like Sugarland, sounds sweet, right? Fucking no, it's not. Think again. It's it's not not sweet in Sugarland. If you're familiar with the Houston area, um, think Greens Point. And I don't want to walk around down there in the daytime. So, probably not a great area. I looked at a house. I looked at this house 
on Google also and does not look like it's improved much over the last 30 some odd years. So around this time in 1988, Pleasant Grove was still very much like the reviews today mentioned. High crime rate, robberies on the rise, gunshots, drugs, idiot drivers peeling off down the street in strange cars. The people who live here, though, seem to have a collective watchful eye for their neighbors. Anything apart from the normal day-to-day -day street activities tends to get noticed, much like on the morning of May 20th, 1988. Really quickly, though, while I was watching the FBI Files video on YouTube for this, one of the guys in the reenactment sounded a lot like Chappelle's white news anchor character. And I just can't stop thinking about this now. What if one of the guys who broke in, what if Howard Cosell broke in and tried to rob you? This is Howard Cosell, and it's good to have you with us for this event. Everybody get on the ground and no one gets hurt. I'm still so taut, so tight, so tense, so alive, so supple, so agile, so mobile, capable of every movement in the chronicle of the male sex. The applause, of course, is well taken. No longer will you have to toil in this, until tonight, Cassell bereft arena. I'm in a desperate time situation here, but I must tell you, not a fortuitous one. Don't you dare make a sound, my memory being photographic to the point of absurdity. This robbery will show it like it is by a man who tells it like it is will be right back. Alright, that was fun for me to do, and I hope that was fun for you to listen to. But really, would that make it more or less scary, do you think? I think either way, I'm shitting my pants. Alright, get your laughs in now, because uh, this next part's kind of rough. The neighborhood started off that day like any other. People going to work, coming home from different places, normal morning activity for an active community. Sam Wright, a resident of the neighborhood, is playing with his three-year-old son Andre upstairs, while his wife Evelyn Banks is having some downtime to herself downstairs. Normal morning, normal day, normal family, normal life. Normal right up until a gunshot rings out. Everybody who was outside at that moment collectively snapped their necks toward the sound. What the hell was that? At that moment, four men burst out of the house, dragging with them Evelyn and Andre, the mother and son. Sam took off toward the back side of the house after wriggling free and ran in the other direction. Just as soon as he got free, I'll explain why later. One of the neighbors immediately calls the cops, obviously. Now, normally, I'm not getting involved with my neighbors. I honestly couldn't tell you what the people around me look like. I know they're there. I can hear him. He's walking around upstairs right now, and it's just, he's probably barely even putting any pressure on it. It's just it's building so old. I, could, I know they're there, but if I walked by them in the grocery store, I'd have no idea who they even were. I no clue. Unless I hear a gunshot from a 357 coming from one of my neighbors, like these people did, kind of don't really care what they're doing. Definitely going to be talking to someone in a uniform about that gunshot, though. So the cops show up sometime later, hopefully fast since this involves a gunshot, though they might also be tied up with other stuff, like the review gunshots. They do show up, though, after a little while and go inside to check out what happened. Gunshot. Four men bust out of the house with mom and son. Burn rubber. Cops are called. Now they're here. Inside, 
they find the house is a complete disaster. It's been ransacked to hell because the assailants were looking for a large amount of money. For those of you keeping count, we have Sam, Evelyn, Andre, and the four men who broke in, every one of whom I've already mentioned is currently accounted for. Sam ran off down the street, Evelyn and Andre are in the car with the four other dudes, so... Who got shot? In the middle of the floor in the living room, the police find the body of David Wilburn, a 25-year-old man. He had been shot in the back of the head one time, presumably with the 357 execution style. Who is he and why is he dead on the floor? I would just love to know. He is Sam's nephew or his neighbor, I think nephew, and possibly mentally challenged in some capacity. I don't think so, though. Sources vary. There's not a lot of them, but... A few of them mentioned this. I don't think he is, though. He was there to drive Evelyn and Sam and Andre down to Louisiana to attend Sam's mother's funeral, which is why I don't think he's mentally challenged. I don't know a lot of mentally handicapped people that drive. I don't know where that source picked that information up from. Not 100% sure, but I don't think that's true. He had just arrived to pick them up. He had no idea what was happening in the house. This has got to be the worst example of wrong place, wrong time I've ever fucking heard of. See that, Gregsby and Peterson? That's wrong place, wrong time. Not the horse shit you tried to say was wrong place, wrong time last week, you Nazi fucks. Go back and listen to last week's episode if you haven't heard it. It's wild and I yell at Nazis. Police are stumped and they have nothing to go on. They have the connection to Sam, but they also don't know where Sam is yet. So what do you do? Duh, you call the FBI. They get a hold of FBI agent Jose Figueroa to help out with this. They determine that the Latino man who'd been driving the car to Sam's house, he'd been there before, but he didn't recognize any of the other men. Now they really need to get in touch with Sam. One, to figure out who this David person really is. Well, we know who he is, but FBI and police, they're not quite there yet. Another reason they need to speak with Mr. Wright is because Sam is a fugitive who has been trying like hell to avoid a drug conviction for about three years at this point, which is why he ran. They figure he probably wouldn't have gotten too far, so they canvass the neighborhood with business cards, talking to neighbors, urging them, please contact them if they hear anything about Sam or anything else. And it worked! A few days later, the man himself, Sam, calls Figueroa, even with the charges he's facing, and tells them the only thing he knew about the man that came to his house and stole his wife and son. He's a man named Gino, and he'd previously been arrested on murder charges in the Rio Grande Valley by the Mesquite Police Department, but that's all he knows. A first name and a vaguely terrifying amount of background. He says he doesn't want to meet in person, but he'll call back again real soon. Not clear exactly why the Mesquite Police Department was down in the Rio Grande, Mesquite, Looks like it's right next to Dallas, but I don't know, I'm not a cop. And that kind of puts a damper on things, doesn't it? Gino's the only lead we have, and the guy that gave it to us just hung up, and we don't know where he is yet. Somebody better get Mesquite on the phone. Don't worry, they're a few steps ahead of you. They contact the Mesquite Police Department and talk to Larry Sprague. Hey, how many of you out there have an Uncle Larry? I swear everybody has an Uncle Larry. Anyway, they contact Uncle Larry in Mesquite, and he tells them, the FBI that the man they're looking for is Gennaro Camacho, or Gino as he's called. Or sometimes, I don't remember exactly where I saw this, he's also known to go by Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, but only on very special occasions. Oh yeah, like when? Well, mainly just that one time in that movie, but 
instead of Gino, it's actually just Terry Crews. Gino is 33, a known drug runner for some local gangs, mostly just weed and mostly would also just distribute stuff at street level, often with the help of his other accomplices. FBI has no clue where to start finding Gino, though, so they track down his girlfriend, Wanda, instead. And Wanda seems like she's probably a bad bitch, probably hold her own pretty well if she's running with Gino. Gino is terrifying, as you'll find out as we progress through this today. He's not a nice guy at all. Two days after the abduction, they track down Wanda, asking if she'd seen Gino. I don't know why I keep saying her name like that. She, of course, tells them, no, I haven't seen Gino, which is really interesting because it's a lie. But she'll contact them if he turns up. I ain't seen nothing. Haven't seen him in weeks. You know, as soon as they leave, she's on the phone with him. Hurry, Gino, they're on to you. You gotta get out of there. Probably way less frantic than I was and with a much less stupid voice. I suspect that's also not the first time she's made that phone call. Police didn't quite have enough leverage to get Wanda to talk, but they lucked out whenever Sam calls the very next day. And this time, they were ready for him. They had already set up a tap and trace on their end so that when and if he called them back, they could instantly start tracing the call and get a line on where he's calling from. Here's something cool. Nowadays, they can trace a call instantly, but back in the 80s and before everything was a digital signal, you'd have to actually trace the connections back to each individual relay point to figure out where the person was calling from. That's why in the movies you always hear, which bugs me, keep them on the line for the trace! I don't know. Agents pull up alongside on the road. They see Sam talking on the phone at a payphone. All right, we got him. Problem is, remember, he's a fugitive, so they don't know how far he might go to not be arrested again. Being on the run for three years and after what just happened two days ago when strangers stole his wife and baby, he's also probably pretty desperate and paranoid. He could have friends nearby with weapons keeping an eye out or who fucking knows what. I don't know either. As he's finishing up the phone call, agents keep a safe distance back from the car he was riding in, and a little ways down the road, after determining there's nobody following them, they pull him over without incident and take him back down to the station to recall the events of that day, May 20th, 1988. We're going to go over them again too, but very briefly. Sam was upstairs that morning playing with Andre. His wife Evelyn was downstairs, chilling out, just waiting on David to show up so they can hoof it over to Louisiana. Road trip, woo! Grab some expensive Doritos, this is a long drive. Then Gino and the other three men break in, we'll introduce them a little later as they become more relevant. They tear up the house, throwing pillows and sofa cushions and picture frames and shit all over the place, smashing shit with complete disregard for the rest of the house, that looks nice, fuck it, throw it on the ground. They're looking for about 20 grand though, which is not going to fit in a picture frame or a sofa cushion, probably. You've never seen 20 grand in person either. Gino's pissed, he wants his money, and Sam was the last person to have it. So they gather them all there in the living room to interrogate whenever David knocks on the door, and then that whole thing happens. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oh shit, oh shit, who? Oh shit, who the fuck are you and why are you in my brother's house? And yeah, we, we don't need to go over that again. We know what happened. And I don't think I mentioned it yet though, but Gino, obviously, if you haven't figured it out, he's the one who pulled the trigger. So that's where we are right now. Sam relays all the events, and they begin posting pictures of him all over the 80s version of Instagram and Twitter, news outlets and tabloids. Please call us if you see this guy. He's obviously very violent, 
armed and very angry about a lot of missing money, which equals danger. The FBI does eventually get another lead, but they aren't exactly thrilled about where it came from. It was another small-time drug dealer named David Munoz, and this David, I think, is probably not very smart. Or at least not concerned with the bigger pictures in his life. He requests, in exchange for telling them what they want to hear, he requests the FBI to please turn a blind eye to what I'm doing, because if you catch Gino, I want to take over his drug debts and clients. That's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Yeah, he didn't actually think that would work, did he? Imagine being the FBI agents hearing that. They have to go meet a drug dealer at a shady motel to figure out where a different drug dealer is, probably at a different shady motel, which they probably already don't want to do, and then he asks them that stupid shit. Hey, y'all mind if I just sell some drugs right under y'all's noses? No. Yeah, sure. Fucking go ahead. We don't mind at all. In fact, do you have any cocaine? Woo, boy, I'm exhausted. No, idiot. That's not going to work at all. They do actually get a lead out of him, though along with a good reason to keep his number safe for the future. Keep an eye on that guy, probably. The name they get is Fast Eddie. No surprise, another shady character. And the ladies hate him. You want to know why? What, does he talk really slow and annoyingly? No, better. Or maybe worse, depending on the situation. His name is Eddie Blaine Cummings, spelled how you think it is. <laughs> and he goes by Fast Eddie? Yep. Cummings. And he's fast. Alright, there's no way he picked that nickname for himself, right? Why would he do that to himself? Well, we're not usually invested in talking about super smart criminals here, are we? And he's somewhere in Oklahoma, too, so that definitely doesn't help his chances. I tried searching for him on Google, and his criminal record, apart from this, is also pretty extensive. On top of having spent time in jail with Gino at one point. He's currently on parole at the time of this story happening. He is currently on parole for an illegal weapons charge, so they don't know exactly where he is, but they did come across a person who had seen him recently. I think that was at a strip club. Fucking cool, let's go. She tells him that he was supposed to be in Lawton the next day for some kind of lunch appointment, and they could find him there. Alright, and I don't know if there's any documentation for this one, but I have determined two possible routes for the crew to have taken after the abduction. This is based on me being bored earlier today and just looking at maps. They maybe either took Murdoch to the C.F. Hahn Highway and rode that along I-45 until it changes to the I-35 in Dallas there, and then from there up Highway 29 going west toward Lawton, or... He was really bored today. They could have rode the 635 around to the 287 until that shifts into Highway 44, which leads straight into Lawton. The reason I bothered trying to figure out their route is because I really want to know what restaurant they nabbed Eddie from. There's the Red Boot Grill, which doesn't look like it has a grill. Looks like the diner in your small town, probably. And among the 13 restaurants listed there on Google today, if this one was there in 1988, it was probably this one. But I don't know if it was still there, and it doesn't really matter anyway. On August 12th, 1988, police arrive at the restaurant he was at and wait until he exits, and they tackle him immediately as he leaves. You're under now they have one of the accomplices. They need to get the rest. Old Fasty Boy says he didn't specifically have anything to do with the kidnapping, but he gives them the names of Juan Jackson and David Cook. We're going to talk a lot about Cook. Cook grew up in Stephenville, Texas. I've driven by that tons of times. And I also didn't realize how many Davids there are in this story. 
I thought it was just two, but I forgot about Munoz, so there's actually three. But he's going to be Cook, so it won't get confusing. FBI gets in contact with the Stephenfield Police Department and asks them to keep an eye out for him. Not long after placing the call, Detective Don Miller calls Agent Bailey with the FBI. He tells them that Cook was found working at his family's convenience store and held there until the super police show up for more questioning. If you know anything, it's best to cooperate. Otherwise, we're definitely going to fuck you, or maybe you'll just get fucked and we won't see it. Either way, that's up to you, Mr. Cook. Fine, I guess I'll cooperate. I, I really just don't want more jail time. I'd, I'd rather just stock that shelf. All right, fine. What do you want to know? What? We want to know where the fuck Gino and the two abductees are, you dumb shit. He agrees to help in exchange for a lighter sentence, and they interrogate him for two full days trying to pull information out of him. He goes over the events of May 20th exactly the same as Sam Wright said, so everything lines up there. Camacho picks up Cook and two more people. He gave Wright 20 grand worth of weed to sell. Sam says it was stolen. Larry Merrill cut the phone line so no one could call for help. Juan Jackson cut through the padlock whilst Cook and Camacho kept watch. Except Cook also tells them that after sweeping the house looking for the money, and after gathering everyone in the living room, Gino tells someone in the crew, not sure whom, to put the baby next to mom. Oh no. And if the baby caused any problems or made any noise, to shoot the baby. What? No, don't shoot the baby. No, don't. Don't shoot the baby. You don't need to shoot a baby. There's never any reason to shoot a baby. Unless it's a baby Metroid. Just then, a knocking arrives at the door, followed closely by David, and then at that whole thing goes down. That's the David Wilburn. David. See, there's too many Davids. Random and specific. Camacho had told Juan and Cook to shoot. Neither one of them could bring themselves to do it. Shoot an innocent man in the head with a hand cannon. I couldn't do it either. I... no. Shit, I don't know if I could shoot a guilty man if I watched him do in front of me what he was accused of. I don't think I could even do that. So the question I'm sure everyone is wondering, and don't worry, I haven't forgotten about them, where the fuck are they? Cook's version of the story never wavered for the entire two-day interrogation, and it lined up perfectly with Sam's story. They tore ass out of there, went to Cook's apartment in Stephenville to figure out what to do next, along with Evelyn and Andre. In the apartment is Spencer Stanley, he's a new member of the group, and also Juan Jackson and Gino were there. Juan cleaned up the guns, took some cash, and he dipped out. He left for good. He said, fuck it, I'm out of here. I guess he's the only one that had any sort of conscience about this whole situation, and he dips out. He leaves. Remember when Wanda called Gino? She got a hold of him the second the cops left and told him, your big brother was just here, which is code word for get the fuck out of wherever you are. The fuzz is looking for you. Gino tells them he's not angry with Evelyn only her husband. He promised to release her and Andre, but only if she promises not to contact the police when he does so. Oh man, I don't like this. So Gino and Spencer Stanley drive Evelyn and Andre to Ardmore, Oklahoma. One of the 17 fucking mics I know right now is from here. Hi, Mike! Gene tells Evelyn they're taking them to a private airstrip for a flight to California until he settles up with Sam and that afterwards he'll contact his people in California to fly them back home. But they never made it to California. August 1988, just after capturing Captain Prematurely, Fast Eddie, 
points them towards Ardmore in hopes that they can get to President Camacho in time. This is the extra warning to those of you with a sensitive constitution. Skip forward like two minutes probably. Yeah, it's about two minutes. I'd also prob I'd also not like to talk about this part for very long, so skip ahead two minutes and see where it's at. Gino and Stanley drive Evelyn and Andre to a remote area. The airstrip is kind of in a weird spot off in the woods somewhere. Then they pull off to the side. Spencer Stanley carried baby Andre. We're going to walk the rest of the way to the runway. Okay, sure. I have no choice but to trust you, dangerous man. After walking through the trees for a little bit, they come out on the other side of the woods into a clearing, and there's no airfield here. But there is a freshly dug hole with roughly the dimensions of a grave oh plot. Evelyn starts screaming, and Andre starts screaming, Gino and Spencer start screaming, Hey, this is fun! Where's the ice cream? We all scream for ice cream, right? So, where is it? I wish... No, anything would be better than this. Sorry, I needed a laugh real quick. Spencer Stanley takes three-year-old Andre, throws him into the hole, and Gino comes up with a three eighty and fires into the grave four times. Four fucking rounds from a three eighty to a three-year-old little boy. What in the actual fuck, man? God, then Spencer grabs Evelyn. He and Gino throw her into the hole. Gino fires two more times, hitting Evelyn twice. And they're both dead. And this was, I think, on the third day after the kidnapping. Not completely positive, but I'm completely certain. Not, I'm reasonably certain about that. <sighs> Jesus Christ, man. This one's so uncomfortable. This is, this is why I learned how to be funny. I'm, I'm laughing and making jokes in these because it's, I'm uncomfortable talking about this. But if someone's going to talk about it, then you kind of have to talk about it, so... Next time you go out in public somewhere, just look around. Do some people watching. Look at how uncomfortable everybody is. Everyone's so fucking uncomfortable right now. Skinny jeans are too tight, or that lady's hat doesn't quite fit right on her head, and she's absolutely going to be a pain in the ass at whatever restaurant she goes to. She definitely has extra questions and complicated modifications. I'll flesh that theory out later on. But, God, people are just so fucking uncomfortable these days. Welcome back, listener. That was gross. Be glad you missed that. You can probably imagine pretty clearly what the FBI agents' faces look like when Cook tells them all this. Probably pretty close to the one I'm making and you're making right now. They immediately make the drive to find the burial site. The next day, agents arrive on the scene with Cook in tow to scour the area for potential grave sites and come across some new growth that looks like it had been recently disturbed. It could be seen pretty easily if you were looking for it, but most people probably didn't even notice. Three months had passed by then. I wonder how many people walked right over them. But they find the spot, and they start digging. There's one problem, though. If you remember from the Bobby Parker episode a few months ago, Oklahoma in August is hot as fuck. And Lawton, that part of the state, pretty goddamn flat, too, so there's nothing to get in the way of the heat except for dead, half-melted, rotting trees, probably, and now they have to dig in it. Grab a shovel, go outside in the hot air, and just start digging. See how long you can last. I helped my roommate last year dig a drainage system for her mom's yard. We had shade, and it still had to take 10-15 minute breaks of work at a time, or otherwise we would have fucking died. It's so unbearably hot like that. 
and they're digging nonstop for like two hours, and they have to go slow. They don't know how deep it is or what else might be buried there until they struck something hard and hollow sounding. And then the foul stench of rotting corpses punches them right in the face. I think we found them, guys. After they discovered the bodies, at least two of the agents had to get out and go puke in the bushes for before going back. But, you know, while I'm here, I might as well go pee. Oh, God, there's a lump coming! Sort of a neat thing I learned this week. They were covered with kitty litter, mainly to help with the smell. I don't know why you'd bother if you're going to bury them anyway. But the kitty litter, combined with the clay in the dirt, absorbed moisture from the bodies and surrounding clay and formed a sort of protective shell that kept the bodies remarkably well-preserved. Well, shit, we'd best get to vapor-rubbing our noses and keeping on digging, so that's exactly what they did. They just put some vapor-rub on their nose, and they kept digging through the stench. Cook then tells detectives, after recovering the bodies, that after they buried them, Gino had thrown the gun into Lake Texoma. The OSBI, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, found more gun casings and the gun. Yay! Growing physical evidence alongside testimony, we can secure a conviction on two kidnappings and three murder charges. And then back at the holding cell the next day, Cook slowly raises his hand and says, Oh no. I bet you guys also probably want to know about Pamela Miller too. God damn it. What did he do? Well, we'll get to that. But first, we should talk about what she does for a living. Oh, well, what did she do? Pamela Miller, unfortunately, the only info I can find on her is in relation to this case. And that is that she was an exotic dancer. Awesome, she's a stripper? Yeah, she was. Then she met Gino one night while working at the club and met up with him after her shift. What she didn't know is that Gino had orchestrated a rather large drug deal with a potential buyer. And what Gino didn't know is that Pam knew who this buyer was because he'd frequented the club that they were currently in. Okay, if you're going to set up a drug deal in a strip club, which I, I guess that's probably the place to do it, probably don't do business with other patrons of the same strip club and also one of the mouthy strippers that works at that same strip club too. That's just a time bomb waiting to go off. And before the deal can even begin, Pam opens up her loud stripper mouth Hey, don't I know you from right over there? Which startles Gino and the buyer, and the deal's off. Buyer gets nervous. She knows too much. She's seen my face. I'm out. Now, how do you think Gino's going to handle that, just based on what we know so far? He is definitely making pancakes about it. Exactly right. He's super pissed that... Wait, what? Maple syrup. Huh? Okay, so Gino is super mad that Pam ruined the deal, even though she didn't mean to. So Gino and Cook drag her out to the car. Cook hops in the driver's seat, and as soon as Pam and Gino get into the back, he starts beating the shit out of her, punching her repeatedly. But she's a Dallas-area 80s exotic dancer, and you gotta be able to handle some shit, so she just starts egging him on the whole time, because fuck you, starts calling him a coward, and a pussy, and a little dick, and baby wiener, and all that stuff, and whatever, you know. I'm not taking this shit going down without no fight. Cook's driving. He knows exactly where they're going. He didn't want to say anything about what's happening in the back seat because Gino is fucking scary. Good God, this man is terrifying. And also because Gino didn't stop beating her until she lost consciousness. And then tells Cook to stop the car. This is rough, everybody. Hold on. Cook pulls over. 
Gino gets out and drags Pam, unconscious and badly beaten body, out with him. Later out behind the car, with her head behind the wheel, and tells Cook to back up. So he does. And not that this makes it any better, but I guess at least it was only the one time. So they gather her up and head on back to Cook's apartment in Stephenville. While they're there, they do what anyone would do after brutally assaulting and murdering an exotic dancer. What, did he autofillate himself to death? No, but I kind of wish he did. That would be something to see, wouldn't it? No, instead of attempting to suck his own you-know-what and then breaking his neck, again, really wish that's what happened instead of this, they put her body in a 55-gallon drum, roll it out onto the patio, pile trash bags on top of it. Two, two weeks in a row with the trash bags, really? And spent the weekend partying it up, drinking tons and tons of cheap beer, smoking shitload of brick weed and the top the literal mountain of cocaine they probably had because it's the 80s. And then come Monday, you know what? Let's go get rid of that body. What the fuck, man? How do you party with a fucking corpse in a barrel on the porch? God, what the fuck? Bailey and Figueroa, Bales and Fig, I'm going to call them because it's fun and shorter. And it's midnight right now. They got have they just have to be in complete awe of how much murder energy this guy has. They ask Cook, fine, well, where can we find the body? And Cook says probably the one thing you really don't want to hear during a murder investigation. He tells them, well, you won't. And they say, why? Hey, Red Kia, do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Richard and Hella Crafts? That story is what led me to this story today, and for those of you who are a little bit ahead of me, you're exactly right. They cut her body up just like how Richard did, and then put the pieces through a wood chipper. Dude, seriously, how the fuck did you find two of these? Don't question the rabbit hole, just follow it. Bailey and Figs are driving when he tells them this, by the way, and they almost ran off the fucking road because they couldn't believe what he'd just heard. I would have, too. Holy shit, dude. He did what? Alright, so where are we going? Cook takes Figs and Bale to the site. Bales and Fig. I don't, either one works, actually. We're obviously not sure if we're going to find any remains two months later. The sun probably melted everything. It's hot as shit in Texas, too. We finally had our first taste of winter weather here a few days ago, and now it's right back up to hot and disrespectful outside. It's a week away from Halloween. I want open window weather, damn it. So Figs and Bale and Cook all get out to look anyway. Somehow they figured out the discharge pass, which I guess is just the angle and range that the machine would launch debris, and they start searching. Miraculously, it pays off, though. They found lots of bone shards and even some human tissue. Tree branches had more tissue dried by the sun, labeled according to location. They also found a few teeth, which matched dental records. 23-year-old Pamela Miller. Fourth murder in four weeks. Where the fuck is Gino? And real quick, I have to say, that would be a fucking metal song title. Bloody trees covered in rotting flesh. Alright, we're done with murder now. No one else dies today. Myself and the two FBI agents have had about enough murder for one day, when out of nowhere, Spencer Stanley's family calls them and tells them that if you want to find Spencer, he is in Huntsville, Alabama, you should go get him. So they track him down, and he's got to be surprised when he opens the door. Knock, knock. Who's there? 
You're under arrest, punk. Oh man, I should have said I wasn't home. That wouldn't work. Yes, it would. That's the rules of knock-knock. No, it isn't. You have to answer the door. I don't have to answer shit. Luckily, Spencer does answer the door. Spencer tells them Gino had thrown the 357 into Lake Ray Hubbard near Dallas. The dive team never found that gun, but they did find a casing and several live rounds, which is not nothing. So much not nothing that that taught me another new thing. Check this shit out. The rounds are taken to materials and devices unit for neutron activation analysis. If you're also wondering what that is, neutron activation analysis is useful here because lead bullets are created in batches and each batch of lead has a distinct, unique chemical composition and signature. So they remove the slugs from the shells transport them to a nuclear reactor. Samples inside the reactor absorb neutrons, giving a precise reading of the chemical elements found in the lead, which acts as a radioactive signature, like a fingerprint, sort of. Signs from, or the signatures from each bullet were identical. That means the Lake bullets and the David Wilburn recovered bullets were from the same batch of lead bullets, which is so cool. Fuck yeah, science. So we have all this evidence and plenty of credible eyewitnesses to put Gino away for the rest of his life. He's murdered four people, kidnapped two of them, and who knows how many other people this man's left in his wake. These are just the ones we know of, probably. He seems to have also spent a little bit of time in Mexico. So where the shit is he now? He's definitely in Mexico. I think the town of Araceli? I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. I know what you're thinking. Can't the FBI just call Mexican authorities and have him arrested and extradited? Nope. Nuh-uh. No, Mexico can't help, man. That's drug kingpin territory, and if we set one foot in that town, we would all die a horrible death, so... Lucky for us, and my brain and eyes, Gino has no gang, they arrested everybody already, and his financial situation's starting to run dry. Gino's getting real desperate, and what do killers do when they get desperate? They get sloppy and they slip up. Hey, you gave me a real answer this time. Good job. I got you, me. He contacts his suppliers in Mexico, and they agree to make a deal if he can find a buyer in the States. So he looks for a middleman north of the border, some sort of low-level, middle-nobody, go-between guy. I I think there's a specific word for that, but I, I can't remember what it is. He eventually does find a buyer willing to work with him, and he's excited. All right, maybe I can get enough from this deal to flee deeper into Mexico and live out my days as a drug lord. And if not for that buyer being an informant for the DEA, that would be a great plan. (laughs) sucker. The informant then calls his handler with the DEA and tells him, Hey, a man named Gino wanted to set up a drug deal. What should I do? Hold that thought, buddy. I gotta make another phone call. So he calls John Lunt over in Fort Worth, Texas, and asks him about this. Lunt tells him, oh shit, that's Gino Camacho. Go ahead with the deal. So he calls Bailey with the good news. We found him. They show the informant a photo. Yep, that's Gino. Yeah, he totally did it. The deal was for a million dollars worth of weed, but they had to finalize the deal in person since it was such a large amount of money, and Gino said he's not comfortable doing a large deal with someone he'd never met before. All right, well, listen here. Listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. How about this? How about... How about I give you $100,000 when you cross the border in McAllen? I don't know. Just as a deposit. How about that? Will that work for you? Can you do that for me? How about that? I don't 
I'm asking you to trust me on this, Gino. Can you do that for me? Come on. Gino hesitantly accepts, but he said, I guess that'll work for old Gino. They also needed to be able to visibly identify him from the other people crossing the border that day. So they requested that he wear very specific clothes that the team committed to memory. No one was really sure he'd wear it either. It seemed it seemed fishy, and he seemed kind of wishy-washy about the whole thing anyway. And I bet they had him wear something super embarrassing and obvious too, like some awkward, annoyingly, painfully brightly colored Hawaiian shirt and some, like, like stupid, hard to pronounce. like, fanny pack that's shaped like a flamingo or some stupid nonsense like that. But it's kind of their only shot, so they have to go through with it anyway. So here we are. The day of the deal. All right, here we go, y'all. Home stretch. Agents are hoping to catch a glimpse of the clothes they'd all memorized, and they're just looking for that little flamingo fanny pack. I can't get that out of my head. And they see him in the clothes. Shit, yeah, we got him. Gino had no idea that basically everybody at the crossing that day was not... Basically everybody at the crossing that day that wasn't a tourist was undercover FBI and DEA and Border Patrol agents. Tour guides, security, ticket taker, popcorn guy, funnel cake, booth operator, tilt-the-world guy, those are carnival rides. They're all undercover agents, parking lot attendants. Gino plays it obviously super cool. He says, I'm Tomas Sanchez, and cool is my signature temperature. I have no ID. I am but a humble tourist coming back from a day trip. And they say, hi, Tomas, nice to meet you. Our signature temperature is, we're super pissed off at you for murdering three people, so why don't you come inside for questioning? Gino somehow didn't catch on to the ploy and thought it'd be okay. <laughs> I'm so smart, look at these Dumb Americans believing my lies. Mexican drug royalty, here I come. Yet he was already in custody and he didn't even know it. What a dummy. So they let his dumbass stew for like two hours in the cell while they waited for a print match to come back. They come back later with a few questions. So you addressed yourself as Tomas Sanchez, but now we'll just say Gennaro Camacho, since that's who you actually are. And he says... Well, if that's what the computer says, then it must be so. But I don't know anything. Bullshit. This is instantly, like in the next 90 seconds, front page news across the entire Southwest. Not really, but the next day for sure. Gino is charged with illegal firearms charges, conspiracy, kidnapping, and multiple capital murder charges. Cook was sentenced to 24 years. Spencer Stanley got a life sentence. Also, Juan Jackson got a life sentence. Fast Eddie, Captain Precum, and Larry Merrill, the phone cutter, both got eight years each. I really hope they found out his nickname in prison and made him prove it. Oh, they for sure did. Sam Wright had to serve out his prior sentence and a little bit extra for running away. Not sure what his current status is, if he's still alive or out of jail or what. But I really hope he's doing okay now. No one should have to go through any of what happened here today. Gino does not get off so easy, though. They really want him for the death penalty, and he's going to die real soon. They had to prove more than premeditation. They also had to prove that he was an immediate threat to society, which they wouldn't be able to do if they tried him for the death penalty first. So they try him on the state-level charges first, which sets it up for a federal death sentence later, which I kind of don't like. But ten years later, on August 26, 1998, execution day, goodbye, ass butt. And we have our second one. 
Last meal. Yeah, love these. And I purposely didn't read this until right now. Camacho's last meal was steak, baked potato, salad, and strawberry ice cream. Not bad at all, actually. Except for that was a probably shit cut of steak. Probably tender as my shoe. And he was executed by lethal injection August 26th, which had to be delayed two hours because of difficulties locating a suitable vein for the injection. So he didn't even fucking make it easy on him going out, you asshole, till his fucking last breath. Goodbye, Gennaro Camacho, you dickhead. So there you have it, folks. How batshit insane was that story today? That's Gino Camacho and his gruesome, gruesome rampage. Fucking wow, that was rough. That was particularly hard to read about, too. I'm not quite sure why, but these came through really vividly in my mind as I was putting this one together, so this was doozy. That's all I have for you this week. Let me know if you liked that story, or at least if you liked how I told it. You can do that over on the Facebook page and the Instagram page, which, by the way, is already rebranded as Second Self Podcast, so go check that out. I'll upload the new artwork after this to all the socials again. Hop on to Apple Podcasts, throw me five stars and a rating. If you really want to show me some love, I'd appreciate the hell out of that. It really does help for some reason. Next week, can't stop, fucking won't stop. I have two for you next week. That's right, twice the amount of Matt in your ear holes as usual. That sounded gross. Sunday's regularly scheduled show, gonna be the Butcher of Hanover. If you thought we talked about some metal shit today, just wait until next week. And boom, bam, baby, bunny, bonus episode, Halloween night. Not going to tell you what that one is, but keep an ear out for that. And if I haven't told you beautiful degenerates out there lately, thank you so much for listening. We love it that anybody would even bother to take the time to listen to me make dick jokes about murders and somehow also enjoy it, so... Seriously, thank you for coming in, having a good time. Go have a badass rest of your day. I'll see you next week, everybody. Stay kind. Stay kind.